This morning we'll be looking at Matthew 26, uh, verses 26 through 29. So listen now to reading of God's holy word. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we do praise you and thank you, Lord, for your, for your word, for the truth that it contains, that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And so as we come to this particular passage, we pray that you would give us understanding and insight by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit, and that as your spirit goes forth with your word, we do pray that it would find within each of our own hearts that rich, fertile soil that will bring about a great and abundant fruit for your glory. And so we pray now for your blessing upon your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Lord's Supper is one of two sacraments that Jesus has commanded the church to observe. And, of course, baptism being the other. And as a holy ordinance instituted by Christ Himself, the Lord's Supper is a true means of grace intended to strengthen and encourage believers in their walk of faith. It's both a sign, that is, it points to the reality of what Jesus has done for us, as well as a seal, that is, it gives us an assurance and guarantee that what has been promised as a result of what Christ has done will indeed come about and be applied to us through the Holy Spirit. This is why approaching the Lord's table and partaking in a worthy manner require a careful reflection upon these things as well as a time of self-examination. Because the Lord's Supper is a rich blessing to those who partake of it in true faith. But the Lord's Supper is also a very intimate time of fellowship not only with the Lord, but also with one another as the body of Christ. And again, this is why we sometimes refer to the Lord's Supper as communion. Literally, communion is a coming together in unity. The Lord's Supper further strengthens our bonds of unity. Not only, again, with our Savior, but also with one another. Well, this becomes another reason why careful preparation of heart is critical, so that we don't come to the table with something against our brother, something that might disrupt the true unity and fellowship that this supper is supposed to uh, display. Well, despite the rich blessing, the celebration of the Lord's Supper has led to great division within the church, and this over centuries, even continuing on into the present day. 
Much of this division has stemmed from errors and perversions of the understanding of the supper and the nature of the elements. And what's perhaps more common in our own circle is an undue emphasis on the signs rather than on that which is signified. And this is somewhat similar to what we mentioned in relation to when we were in the Olivet Discourse when Jesus is talking about the signs of the times that some people get so caught up in, in looking for those signs that they neglect the duty which Christ has called to them to do in the here and now. Well, likewise, some can be tempted to be so focused on the signs of the elements that they lose focus of what is actually being signified. Our redemption and the unity that we share through the death of Jesus Christ. And so certainly we'll keep these things in mind as we come to our passage this morning. And the first thing we want to consider is that the Lord's Supper is a new meal instituted by Christ Himself. Now, last time we looked at the celebration of the Passover, noting that this was the last Passover Supper. Passover, of course, was instituted for the Israelites as a commemoration of their redemption from affliction and slavery in Egypt and and God's passing over them and protecting them from death because of the blood of the Lamb that marked their doorposts that He had commanded them to place there. But as much as Passover looked back on God's deliverance at the time of the Exodus it also looked forward to the coming of the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, who would once and for all deliver His people from their enemies. Indeed, this, the Christ would be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And so Passover looked forward to this perfect Lamb to be slain so that His shed blood would cover His people and that the just judgment and wrath of God against sin would pass over them on the last great day of judgment. Well, Jesus, being that very same Lamb of God, is now celebrating this Passover meal with His disciples. Again, not only will this be His last supper with them, but it will also be the last Passover to hold any real significance. Not only for for Christian believers, but even for the Jews. Because Jesus has now come to fulfill that Passover meal. Well, it's in the midst of this last Passover supper that we find Jesus instituting something new. The very first supper of the New Covenant. What we call the Lord's Supper. Verse 26, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. (laughs) Now the transition to something new and different is seen in what Jesus says here. Though though the Passover certainly involved bread and, and cups of wine, blessings and distributing of food to those gathered around, when Jesus begins to say, take, eat, this is my body, well, that's something totally new. That wasn't a part of the typical Passover liturgy. Those words are not found. And so the disciples who had celebrated many Passover meals with their families would note the clear departure on this point. And it would give them indication that Jesus was now transitioning their thoughts 
from the past to the present. And one of the key things that stands out about this new meal is that there's no charge or command to shed blood. Remember, the Passover was a a bloody meal, right? Because it involved the sacrificing of the lamb and its lamb, uh, the, the blood to be placed upon the doorposts. Indeed, we could uh, say that many aspects of the Old Covenant involved the shedding of blood, whether it was uh, the celebration of the Passover or just the offering up of, of the regular sacrifices as atonement for sin. And even the Old Covenant, a sign and seal of circumcision involved the shedding of blood. The shedding of blood was the just judgment of God upon sin. And that goes all the way back to the garden when God promised, when God is giving His His law to Adam, and He said, if you obey, you will live. And the implication is, or no, He's actually said, if you disobey, you will surely die. And the implication was, was that, well, obviously if they, He obeyed, He would live. Right? So death was required for the shedding of blood was required for the one who sins. And we see that in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Well, God, in His abounding grace and mercy, uh, instead of requiring the blood of the one who sinned right there on the spot, He allowed His people to sacrifice bulls, goats, and lambs instead of themselves suffering that death. That's why we call it a substitutionary atonement. God allowed a substitute, that itself being, again, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the New Covenant, things are very different. Now, though it's true that that blood was indeed shed, that remained in place, again, because it began all the way at the time of creation, blood was indeed shed to secure the New Covenant, but it was the blood of Christ. But that only happened once, and it was for all, as it was the only perfect sacrifice for sin that God accepted. Now the Jews had to celebrate the Passover every year, and the sacrifices had to be made every year. Some sacrifices, of course, again, were made daily. But again, in the New Covenant, because of Christ's perfect sacrifice for sin, those bloody sacrifices are no longer necessary. As we noted already, the Passover looked forward to um, to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what was promised. In this new covenant meal, we now look back upon the accomplished once for all work that Christ did for us. So there is a connection between the Passover and the Lord's Supper, but they're not the same thing. In the same way that there's a connection between circumcision and baptism, but there again, they're not the same thing. The Lord's Supper is a new meal, signifying the fullness of the blessings that we receive from Christ's suffering and death in the new covenant. But there's another contrast to be made between these two meals. The Passover was an elaborate meal and much time was needed to prepare the meal itself. 
But the Lord's Supper is a very simple meal. So that the focus isn't on preparing the meal itself, but the focus can be on preparing the heart of the one who partakes. But of course, as with anything else, our sin nature tends to make even the most simple things complicated. And nothing becomes more complicated than when people try to understand the elements of the bread and the cup. And there are many points of controversy and error here, beginning with the bread. Now, given that this was the Passover, and unleavened bread was to be used in the celebration, and it was the first day of the seven-day feast of unleavened bread, which required, of course, that all leaven had to be removed from someone's house, or from from the house of of the Jews, Well, there's no doubt that unleavened bread was used by Jesus in this first Lord's Supper. But note, Jesus gives no command or charge here regarding the kind of bread to be used in this supper, as God did in the Old Testament with the Passover, where he specifically said that you should use unleavened bread. Here, unleavened bread is being used because that was the bread That was available. And we also note that later references to the breaking of bread uh, in the New Testament, which in some cases, I don't believe all, but in some cases, is a clear reference to the celebrating of the Lord's Supper. Well, there's no qualification that the bread must be unleavened. In the early church, common leavened bread was most often used as those celebrating understood that the bread was just a sign or symbol. And so the kind of bread becomes really a a very distant, uh, secondary, even tertiary, uh, even far back issue. And a distraction away from the purpose and meaning of the supper itself. Instead of worrying about what kind of bread, well, we need to be focused, what is the bread signifying? But when we begin to talk about what the bread signifies, well, of course, then we run into a whole host of other issues. And Jesus says here about the bread, he says, take, eat, this is my body. That seems a little shocking, perhaps. Was Jesus here actually saying that the bread was literally his body? No, of course not. Jesus wasn't inviting cannibalism. And yet, of course, there are some who take Jesus' words here very literally. The teaching of Roman Catholics is that the bread is the literal body of Jesus. And they reach this conclusion through their doctrine of transubstantiation, which also would involve the contents of the cup, that that's literally the blood of Christ. And they assert that at the time when the priest consecrates the elements, well, there happens a double miracle. But a wonderful thing, a double miracle occurs, whereby the bread is... Uh, magically, miraculously transformed into the literal body of Jesus Christ. But see, then there's a second miracle. Surprise, surprise. Upon tasting that bread, it tastes like bread and not flesh. So it becomes the literal body uh, of Christ, but that second miracle is, well, it doesn't taste like you're eating a piece of 
flesh. It tastes like bread. So that's the double miracle that they, that they claim occurs. That's the process of transubstantiation. And so uh, in the liturgy of, of Romanism, they use terms, they emphasize the term body and blood, whereas we tend to use the words the bread and the cup. But here's the problem with their view. It's clear that when Jesus held out the bread and said, take, eat, this is my body. Well, first of all, the disciples didn't shrink back in fear thinking Jesus was telling them to eat, eat his actual body. No, in fact, Jesus' body remained fully intact. As he held out the bread, there was a clear distinction between where his body ended and the bread began. Jesus was using figurative language. And he's done this numerous times before. He has said, uh, I am the vine. He wasn't a literally uh, a plant. Or I'm the door. Or I'm the light. I'm the bread of life. These are all figurative uh, uses of speech. And so, it's not the literal body of Christ. Well, another error is, is the Lutheran view of the elements. And Lutherans, uh, Luther posited uh, in what he called consubstantiation that the body of Christ is present in the elements, within, under, and around the bread. It wasn't necessarily literally the, the, the body, but it was all around it. That you couldn't, to, to where you couldn't distinguish where the body of Christ was and where the bread was. But again, there's no foundation for this as Jesus again is speaking of a spiritual presence of his body and not a literal presence. And we have a, a very similar example where uh, this kind of symbolism where Jesus is talking with the Samaritan woman at the well in, in John 4. And Jesus says to the woman, whoever drinks of this water, meaning the water from the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And of course, the, the woman, she thought Jesus was talking a little bit. Well, I, I want some of this water. You know, give, give me some of that. But she didn't understand. Jesus wasn't talking about Jesus didn't have a special container of, of this life-giving water. He was talking about the Holy Spirit. And so in the same way, the bread is symbolic of, of the body or the life of Jesus Christ, which he would give for the sins of his people. The bread is not literally the body of Christ. Now we rightly understand the meaning of the bread when we consider the action taken, and especially the one who is acting, that is Jesus. Right? What is Jesus saying? What is he doing here? Well, his actions here, in many respects, were common. But he adds meaning to these common actions. And so in verse 26, he took some bread and he displayed it before them. And then he blessed the bread. And this blessing is a consecration or a, or a setting apart of the bread, not in the same sense as the Romanists and their miraculous con- consecration, but simply a prayer of thanksgiving. And asking the Lord to set apart what is common 
pray holy purpose and use. Now we give thanks for the food, for our physical nourishment. Well then certainly we should then give thanks for our spiritual nourishment. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Well next he broke the bread. Again, not only as a way to more easily distribute the bread to his disciples, but to picture his body which would be broken for them on the cross. And he's giving them this broken body as he gave it to the disciples. That is, he distributed it to them. One piece of bread or, or loaf spread among many so that each now has and is able to partake. And in our kind of liturgy of the Lord's Supper, we, we hold the elements to all been served so that we may commune together, that we can partake together. We receive it and then we partake together. Then comes the command to take, eat. Right? So they were to receive it. Even as Christ in grace extends salvation to His people, they're empowered to receive that salvation. And so the disciples then ate it. They didn't fall down and worship it. Again, as the Romanists do, right? when they enter into the, into the uh into the church and they often will bow down and they make the sign of the cross. Why are they doing that? Well, because they are worshiping, honoring the bread, the host that they call it. Um, they're worshiping this bread because thinking that it is the literal body of Jesus. The <coughs> disciples don't do that. They're not falling down, worshiping the bread. They take it and they eat it as Jesus had commanded. Now as common bread nourishes the body, so the bread of the supper nourishes the heart and soul as a true means of grace. It was Christ to give and he gave it. Just as his life and body was his to give and he gave it that we might be saved. So what about the cup in verse 27 and 28? Now, it's important to note Jesus only references the cup. During the Passover, there were several uh, cups. And this one, which uh, Mark and Luke and, and Paul all tell us was after supper. Well, this cup after supper is likely would be the, what would they, the, the Jews would refer to as the cup of blessing. It was the final cup of the Passover meal. But even though Jesus only mentions the cup, obviously what he's concerned about is the contents. And as with the bread, again, there's much division about what's in the cup. Everybody wants to peer into the cup to see what's there. Well, again, remembering the context of the Passover, certainly the cup would have contained common wine. Though, it was very customary at the time among the Jews to greatly water down the wine, not only for the Passover, but even for general usage. And of course today we sometimes have this debate about whether we use wine or grape juice and whether one is or the other is required. Even our own synod has spent much time, years, deliberating on this particular issue and of course, the conclusion that was reached was that either wine or grape juice is acceptable to use 
in the Lord's Supper since they're both from the same fruit of the vine. Well, just as Jesus gives no special charge or requirement regarding the type of bread used, there's no charge or requirement regarding the contents of the cup other than it be the fruit of the vine, which again throughout uh, the scriptures, uh, when you look up that phrase fruit of the vine, uh, almost always refers to a grapes and grapevine. Now, there are many good arguments on both sides of the issue. And, and certainly when we engage in, in discussions about these, these things, we should do so with the view to always be looking out for the interests of others rather than ourselves so that we don't cause each other to stumble. But again, the important thing for us to really focus on isn't so much the contents of the cup, but rather the sign and uh, that is the sign and the symbol, but on what that cup symbolizes and what it points to. As with the bread, the wine wasn't literally the blood of Christ. For the very same reason, as we noted with the bread, the, the view of Rome and Luther are, aren't founded in the scriptures. The cup was symbolic of Christ's blood, which would be shed and, and poured out for the remission of sins. And Christ's blood truly would be poured out, but it's not literally poured out every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's not poured out again and again and again and again because His blood was poured out once and for all at the cross. And what we do in the Lord's Supper is simply a picture of that, a symbol of that. We see the meaning which Jesus attributes to the cup through, again, through the action involved. And what he says, he, he took the cup, again, displaying it to his disciples, and then he gave thanks. This being the same blessing or prayer of consecration, a setting apart and giving thanks to God for the blood of Christ shed for us. He then gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. And they all drank of the cup. That is, they all took or claimed a part of the sacrifice of His blood for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, one of the abuses that the Reformers on the time of the Reformation fought against was that there should be communion in both kinds. Because the practice had become in the Roman church that, that priests wouldn't give the people the wine, but they would only drink it for themselves. Well, Jesus is very clear in His instructions here that all his disciples were to take it and drink, not just a select few. Jesus then adds in verse 28, For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now this idea of the blood of the covenant, well that goes all the way back to Exodus 24. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people. Again, all the people are receiving it. They're all getting sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So there's this blood being sprinkled on them as a symbol of the covenant that God has made with them. The covenant is established by the blood of the atoning sacrifice. But again, this is now placed in the context of the new covenant. The bloodless covenant, although there was the blood of Christ. 
the essence of the new covenant we find in Jeremiah 31, but this is the, the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so this is ushering in of the covenant of grace in all its fullness because of the perfect atonement made by Jesus. And all those who partake then are to receive that that symbol, even as all the people are sprinkled with the blood. Note further that Jesus says that this blood is shed for many for the remission of sins. He doesn't say all. He doesn't say a few, but many. A great number. That is, all those who believe on Him. So again, just as the people were sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice, so Christ's people are sprinkled with His sin-cleansing blood. And we remember that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so you see, despite all the various errors and rabbit trails that have complicated the Lord's Supper, it really is a simple meal. It's the bread and the cup. It's a simple meal pointing us toward Jesus and what He has accomplished for us. Now, if you come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and you come to the table with your, with your stomach growling, hoping to have a, a sumptuous meal to, to, in order to ease your hunger and to fill your physical appetite, well, you're going to be greatly disappointed. Because there's not a whole lot of physical nourishment in a tiny cup and in a small piece of bread. And this was true even at the First Supper. Of course, at this point, they had already eaten a full meal with the the Passover. So they weren't likely to be hungry when Jesus instituted something new. But even here, he's giving them a piece of the bread, and they're drinking some of the, uh, the cup that he distributes to them. And so Jesus' intention in, in instituting the Lord's Supper is that it's first and foremost a spiritual meal. That is a meal in which we receive spiritual nourishment and encouragement. It's not to feed our bodies. It's to feed our souls. This is why we call the Lord's Supper a means of grace. It communicates to us a nourishing grace from God so that we can be strengthened, that we can grow in our faith. Now we have to be clear against those today who falsely claim that the grace offered in the, the Lord's Supper is, is somehow necessary for salvation, even as they might say, uh, have a similar view regarding baptism. Now taking, taking part in the Lord's Supper doesn't save you. It doesn't make you justified in God's sight. It doesn't count as merit or even righteousness to earn God's favor. No, taking part in the Lord's Supper strengthens and encourages a faith and salvation that's already present by the, by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not something that's giving us salvation, but it's encouraging and nourishing the grace and the salvation that we already enjoy in Christ. The Lord's Supper then <coughs> is intended to be only In this case, then, it's intended to be only for believers. right? For those who've confessed their sins and professed their faith in Jesus Christ and who've claimed those covenant promises as their own. Professed believers are the ones 
who are unable to partake of the supper. It's certainly, though, not for people who are perfect. And sometimes we can get caught up in that, that where we may partake or we may not partake because we feel we're not, we're not perfect enough. No, the essence of the supper is that it's for poor and needy sinners who've humbly examined themselves and who acknowledge their need for a most gracious Savior. It's because we realize that we can't save ourselves and then we acknowledge that only our salvation only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we come to the table. That we're in need of the grace that He offers to us so that we might be strengthened and sustained. When we come to the Lord's table we actually receive spiritual benefit to grow and strengthen our faith as we reflect upon what Christ has has done for us. And uh, Calvin uh, holds that we're in a real spiritual way actually taken up to heaven. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, he says we're in a spiritual way taken up to heaven to partake of this feast. Not in a physical bodily feast, but one in which we partake of the real spiritual benefits that Christ has accomplished for us. And so it's truly a very powerful, and it shows our deep union with Christ. But we must be cautioned here against viewing the Lord's Supper as only a memorial meal. Now this is probably the most widespread view across evangelicalism today, and goes back to the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli. And this view stems from the words that Luke and and Paul include, do this in remembrance of me. And it asserts that in partaking of the Lord's Supper, we're only remembering what He did. Now it's true. We are to remember. We are to look back and and to give thanks uh, uh, when we uh, partake of the Lord's Supper. We're to give thanks for the, the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. And Paul, in fact, sums this up in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, when he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. But as we've seen, the Lord's Supper is far more than just a simple memorial. It truly encourages us and gives us assurance that the covenant promise is made to us that our sins would be forgiven, and that we would be delivered from, from the curse of sin and death, that these will truly come about. It is a memorial meal, but it's also a very real, encouraging spiritual meal. So it's not just a memorial meal. The Lord's Supper is also a communal meal. Right? Jesus didn't eat this meal alone, but He shared it with His disciples. We mentioned already it shows our union and communion with Christ and with one another. So here Jesus, He's the host and we're the guests that are at His table. He gives and we receive the benefits of His death signified in the elements. We see this in that He charges the disciples to drink from it, all of you. And they were all to take part. They were all included except Most likely for Judas, who's likely at this point departed to carry out his betrayal after Jesus had exposed his treachery uh, earlier in the meal. There's little debate about whether Judas was there or not, but it seems that uh, most likely that he's probably gone by now. 
The Lord's Supper then isn't a personal or individual celebration between me and the Lord. Right? Sometimes people take offense. For example, in our practice, we we uh, feel it's the, the the duty of the of the elders to uh, to hold the keys of the kingdom. Part of that is who gains entrance and who uh, is kept out. And so we, we interview people. And sometimes people may get offended. Well, this is between me and the Lord. Well, no, it's not between you and the Lord. There's a part where you receive those benefits personally, but it's a communal meal. It's something that we share in together. And so from this, we conclude that there can be no private communion. Because the supper is a sacrament for the believing community of God's people. And certainly in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul urges the need to discern the body, what well, includes this very thing, that, that we're aware that we're all members of one body of Christ. In fact, in the next very next chapter, Paul will address that very thing. And so we, we share in this together. It's a meal that we share together, not... It's not a personal, private thing. This furthers the need then to examine ourselves and to be sure that we're at peace with one another before we approach the table. We come together at the table of the Lord as one, as those whose hearts are united together in a common faith in Christ Jesus. Finally, the Lord's Supper is an unfinished meal. That as Jesus institutes the first supper here, but he's about to leave them. Not only to go ahead and and fulfill what the meal signifies, but he's going to be taken from them and he'll no longer celebrate this with them, at least in his physical presence, as he has been for the last three years. But his disciples are to continue celebrating this meal. Because he will still be with them spiritually and will communicate to them those spiritual benefits. But note that Jesus says here in verse 29, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. See, the host of the meal is leaving. But he'll be back. And when he returns, he'll sit down together with all his disciples and carry on an eternal feast in the kingdom of heaven. And at that time, we'll have full and perfect union and communion, not only with Christ our Savior, but with all believers of every age. Again, Calvin notes here that that during our celebration of the Lord's Supper now, we're taken spiritually to heaven to join in this meal. But there's going to come a time when those in Christ Jesus will actually partake really and truly, not just spiritually, but also in our resurrected, glorified, physical bodies. And so the Lord's Supper not only looks back, but it also looks forward to when it will be declared in Revelation 19.9, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Beloved of God, Jesus institutes the first Lord's Supper. A new covenant meal. The promise of which He'll soon secure with His sacrificial death on the cross. And with His resurrection from the dead on the third day. 
And as often as we look back together and remember Christ's body broken and His blood shed for us on the cross, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, know that we'll receive a real spiritual benefit to graciously spur us on in faith, even as we continue to look forward to that time when we'll be seated with all faithful believers of every age in the very presence of our precious Savior and His glorious heavenly table. Love the God, this is our certain hope that Christ has given, that He has given us this simple meal. And it pictures so much. It gives us so much encouragement and blessing. And yet, there's something greater yet to come to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you for your blessing upon us. And we thank you for for giving us this simple meal of the Lord's Supper. And it has been a point, unfortunately, of great division and uh, error. And we just pray that you would uh, give us wisdom and guidance as we would discern your truth. And that we would truly not get bogged down in, in some of the details, but that we would truly be focused upon what this all signifies. That you gave yourself, that you shed your blood for us in our place so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be washed and cleansed from our sin, so that we might be reconciled to God, our Creator. And so we praise you and thank you, O Lord, that you have blessed us with such a, a rich blessing as the Lord's Supper is. And even now, as we would look forward to the next time that we celebrate this supper, that we would uh, be preparing ourselves for that. As we reflect even now upon all these things, what you have done for us, and what this simple meal signifies, that we might truly be drawn closer to you, even as we look forward to a greater blessing and a greater banquet that will be more glorious than we could ever possibly imagine because we'll be there with you in person as it were with all your people celebrating and giving thanks and praising and worshiping you father we just praise you and thank you that you give us such hope to spur us on in this life And we pray that we would certainly be faithful in seeking to live even now for your glory till we get to that time. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.